because they already let me in because it was done on the 8th of August and they let me in on the 9th of August to Berlin and paid for me and let me speak in my own thing. And it's illogical from the perspective in that they, they have, they, 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 they've got my exhibition on show, but they won't let me speak about it. So that's just absurd. Like, basically, you know that the... So the Angela Dawn from the Green Party and Christian Gazelle from the SPD, they wanted to ban the whole exhibition and they wanted to disinvite yeah. me. And Rand Grupa uh, and the CEO basically compromised with them and said the CEO doesn't want to ban any of the exhibition but he wants to ban me from the public programme which he says is necessary and Rangupa thought because they're so out of touch with everyone apart from powerful white people that I had no events left so they thought if they compromised on the public programme it would make no difference because at the end of the day they're not and then somehow all the internal communication in Documenta is leaked out to the press and, and so I don't even think they intended to do that I think the supervisory board did, who are all aligned to political parties, Green, SPD, and I think it is just Green and SPD, and that's a resentment. Of, there's no Delinka in the board, there's no uh, Christian Democrats, there's no AFD, there's no uh, FDP. It's, I think it is entirely. I'm not, I'm not sure how it was like when you did it. I first find that weird, because I've never had that. Uh, yeah, I think you're at the crux, because there is, yeah. um, I guess since the allegation, yeah. There has been this tension, these allegations in January, you know, after this uh, post yeah. website. There has been this tension of whether the com there will be the commission that will censor, you know, the, you know, there, so there were the allegations on anti-Semitism and then there was this, uh, well, I guess, uh, <coughs> attempt I'll um, tell you a, a nice bit of new new. Let's go, carry on. I mean, there's a nice bit of news that came. There was an attempt to make a commission that would say which artworks would, uh, you know, to look at the artworks and actually to censorship. So I guess the tense, yeah. the issue of censorship has been since January. And I, I just find this fascist. Like I said, fascist as a joke, but now yeah. they started behaving like fascists. There's no other word for it. They're this I said it as a joke, frivolously, and now they're behaving. The only only countries that behave like this are fascist countries. There's no other word for it. It's like it's, it's the whole thing is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Do you know where you were getting into it when you got invited by Documenta? I mean, no, did, did I had no idea. I, I, I thought or? I thought Germany was a more civilized place than Britain, and and I got that impression for not. Firstly, Angela Merkel has a very positive image abroad for a right-wing leader she's she's seen as generally quite a, she's seen as like i don't know stable and sober and being pro-refugee which she's known for which is very unusual for a center-right party so that that was one thing uh plus germany I, I you know a lot of basically a lot of british artists live in berlin and so i thought oh look a bunch of white hipsters from goldsmiths live in berlin so it's a more civilized place that's what i thought um uh, and, and Leipzig, that, that I know lots of British people who've gone to live there and they're usually goldsmith students, right? Um, and they're all white and they're all hipsters, right? So on those two impressions, I just thought it was, a, I, I heard a bit of Padiga, I heard a bit of AFD from, from a distance, but I was never wor worried at all. I actually thought Germany would be more, so I didn't know what Axel Springer was until June this year. So I, I had no idea. I just thought, I thought 
Britain was uniquely bad. Uh, now I've gone home and I think Britain's a far less racist place and a far uh, more um, better for civil liberties than, than Germany. And I think it's, it's implicated in their history. And I don't think they're probably denazified as a country. The remnants of it keeps springing up. It keeps like, like um, it keeps floating back to the top. And and the Stasi element and the Nazi element is still floating to the top. And it's still not distant enough. It's still not erased. It's still not annihilated. It's 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 just reforming in new ways. So like, Muslims are now scapegoat for every ill on the earth. Um, <clears throat> but it has the same patterns in terms of it's neoliberals. It's people who don't want to pay tax, who don't want a good welfare state, who don't want um, state regulation, who don't want public services, they scapegoat people like me, um, who, what, I got paid 5,000 euros, whereas Olaf wants to spend 100 billion euros on remilitarizing Germany, which is a real waste of taxpayers' money. Yeah, and I guess for people listening to this podcast, they don't know. Maybe many of some of them don't know uh, you and your background. Sure. Should we start? Uh, I, 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 I'm not sure what, what you know the line between our conversation and no, like. No, that's, that's the, the the character of the podcast is totally okay. informal, so it's what no, is... it's totally fine. But uh, I think you know, like, kind of knowing what happened to your brother, yeah. Talha, and how yeah. you campaign and everything. I mean, this must have been. Uh, I think this is the third great trauma of my life. So the first great trauma of my life was uh, my brother's detention without trial for uh, six and a half years and then put into solitary confinement for, you know, very marginal association with a website in, in something that doesn't even amount to a case, really. And that was more about, said more about the, the, the subservience of Britain to uh, the United States and the war on terror and also the, the, the way in which people who had posed no threat to anybody uh, were criminalized and and brutalized and abused and tortured by their own government and were treated like second class citizens so that was something uh that I'm prepared for this in that I'm used to being hated by all the right wing press I'm I'm used to appearing in uh, the funny thing is all the pictures in the Axel Springer press and uh, De Spiegler uh, if that's how you say it, I might excuse my bad german pronunciation uh, all the the mainstream German media have used pictures of me from Getty Images from those days, from 2012, where I'm far younger and far better looking and wear cooler clothes. Um, and some of them actually, there's one picture where I'm actually standing next to Jeremy Corbyn. They've they've cropped him out of the picture, um, speaking against the occupation of Afghanistan. And now the troops of NATO were defeated in the Second Vietnam and left and we see what a total waste of money NATO wars are, we see what a total um, destruction of life and destruction of sovereignty and imperialism uh, that NATO was. So the, the delusion of, of NATO is, is still very much alive, the delusion of Germany that it could be a 19th century imperial power again or something of the like is still very much alive. So, so the, the replay of history and also the, the the total lack of touch of reality that's been quite orchestrated. I mean, I can see through the whole thing that, um, <clears throat> you know, anyone who goes to Documenta, you see tens of thousands of people, many German families really enjoying themselves. You see loads of local people enjoying themselves. You see people of all different races, religions, enjoying themselves. My Jewish friends, uh, Harder Cohen was there just recently 
um, she just found Germany really effed up place, a really messed up place. Um, but she really, uh, she could see through the whole thing. And she, even as someone coming from California, um, yeah, she found the whole thing like really messed up. And uh, you know, there's so many different themes in in Documenta. There's there's like neurodiversity in project artworks, in my work, in 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 the quiet spaces. There's really brilliant, groundbreaking work on childcare. Like Ruru Kids is an absolutely amazing open access education room about the autonomy of children and babies and, and creativity. And it's a brilliant way in which a uh, education program and a families program fuse together. These are all the things we should be talking about. Instead, there's a total one-eyed fixation by unconditional uh, supporters of the apartheid regime uh, and the illegal occupation of Palestine and people who will turn a blind eye to ethnic cleansing, the murder of children, and other intolerable, degrading, dehumanizing things, uh, just to uh, protect this this delusional military alliance and and this delusional idea that it atones for Nazism and the Holocaust. When they said never again with the Holocaust, the great horror of of our time. Um, that meant never again for anyone and that meant the Roma people there's Roma exhibitions in in uh, Documenta there's plenty of exhibitions about Islamophobia and and many many Holocaust survivors showed a lot of empathy towards the Muslims in Bosnia um, the concentration camps in Bosnia the rape camps in Bosnia against the Bosnian Muslims that was a very key event for me uh, in the 90s and I actually asked Documenta the 11th of July is the official EU day when we mark the genocide of Muslims in Bosnia. What are you doing about it? Why don't you mark it? Again, they, they, they ignore you like 99% of the time. You know, why do German taxpayers pay for administrators and curators and producers who cannot even do the basics of replying to an email or a phone call? Um, I feel that resentment too. Uh, and I'm not a German. Um, I... I asked them, I asked them, I gave them very practical tips for dealing with anti-Muslim exclusion and um, Islamophobia. It's very clear when you go to Kassel that the, 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 the local people are very visibly Muslim. There's Syrians, Af uh, Afghans, Somalis, Yemen, Turks, they're all around. And what engagement do they have with Documenta? The, the thing I found shocking when I came to Documenta is that nearly every department the sales department, the archives department, the uh, press department, the production department is 100% white. They might see, there's I think there's one token ethnic in the, uh, from East Asian ancestry in, in the press department, but literally that's it out of hundreds of staff. I mean, even the Lumbum gallery is 100% white. Um, so I didn't have much faith that they'd be able to engage or have basic knowledge with the uh, locals um, and I don't have much faith Ryan Grouper does it's funny because in in the catalog to document 15 it says assalamu alaikum and it's it's almost posited as a foreign like import but everyone living around Castle uh, around Ruru house says assalamu alaikum maybe they should say that to the kebab owners or the mobile phone owners or everyone around um, and it's funny they have to almost import uh, people and, and 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 the fried chicken houses which I took you to and I took the Sobats to were, were very much the meeting place 
the fried the happy chicken which i regard as the finest fried chicken uh shop in the whole of the european union uh, i think it's run by egyptian uh, arabs uh it's two minutes walk from the main venues in documenta but yet the staff had never been there so i took all the staff there i took the sobats there who were the tour guides and uh, I, I, I wanted to get back just to because you just said that there were three traumas you know that you had in your life yeah and you you went through the first one and i guess the first the one is the was my brother Talha Hassan um who was yeah a victim of uh, some of the atrocious legislation approach uh, he was ripped from my family home i mean this is the brother that i shared a bunk bed with um yeah he was ripped from his family home he's a year older than me yeah, he was a very intelligent guy who had a job interview to be a librarian on the day of his arrest and yeah he he was detained for this obsolete website about the conflicts in bosnia chechnya and afghanistan i mean the funny thing with the chechen war is that Putin now is invading Ukraine. And at the time, Muslims in the 1990s felt very concerned about the genocidal war crimes by Putin in Chechnya. And those of them reporting on it, this is years before, you know, Al Jazeera, CNN, I don't know, when these different indie media and alternative media had all these podcasts and vlogcasts and whatever not. So people in supportive of the Chechen uh, population who were brutalized by uh, Russia, and I, 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 you know, stand on record. I said Putin is a war criminal for what he did in Chechnya, and they were they, that um, some of those war crimes may amount to genocide, right? Um, so Muslims who were concerned about it, who wanted to show their support towards the Chechens, were retrospectively criminalized after nine eleven. And yet now we have white people, white Europeans, showing concern for Ukraine because they reported a one-sided narrative. I mean, I'm sure the Russian army has committed, like any army, uh, war crimes or um, brutalities, uh, but they are allowed to even travel there, like old olden day Mujahideen or something like that. They could travel to Ukraine if they want. And uh, Liz Truss, the Conservative Foreign Secretary, has even encouraged this. Uh, there's already been many British people joining paramilitary forces, some of them fighting with side by side by some of the neo-Nazi integrated uh, uh, units like the Azov Battalion and C4, you know, C14 and these very ugly anti-Semitic Nazi collaborators, neo-Nazis who um, go all the way back to you know the 1940s by our ancestry, and NATO is is openly. Um, arming such people so that that anyway that's going off a tangent but um that was a, a very big trauma for me uh, I was my brother you know I, I'm his only brother so I had to support him through uh, solitary confinement and there was a lot of c celebrity support Noam Chomsky supported us uh, he made a beautiful video for us uh, the Angola Free who were free Black Panthers they supported us because they had been in solitary confinement for like 30 years 40 years and <clears throat> Amnesty International had just taken on their case and there's a very beautiful film called In the Land of the Free I think all of them are dead now apart from Robert King but Robert King and I from the Anglo Free worked together because we were building an international coalition against solitary confinement you know there's 80,000 people in solitary confinement 50,000 people 
50% of suicides in American prisons are people in solitary confinement, whereas it constitutes less than 5% of the population. So all the atrocities you see in uh, Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and done to Chelsea Manning are basically done day to day in the US criminal justice system, except mostly to poor, financially poor black men, working class black men. And so um, these people aren't their their brutalization isn't really um, given the, the the sort of attention it deserves. But um, that was that that was obviously very traumatic for my parents. They they lived as because you know when you're detained without trial, what do you count down to? You you just detained for without trial forever. Um, so that obviously that was that caused me a lot of trauma, and and I feel that trauma is in just coming back into my system. The Shire Radicals film, which was released a couple of years ago, which is a film of my best-selling book, Shire Radicals, which most people know me for these days. Before Shire Radicals came out, I was best known for being my brother's brother, and I was most famous for his campaign. And I went on every newsroom. I went to Al Jazeera, CNN, BBC, RT, um, all the... Even democracy... Yeah. Uh, there is a strong connection, no? Because, uh, I mean, your brother, after being in solitary confinement, was diagnosed with Asperger yeah. syndrome. And then the, the, the country which you, uh, the fictive country that you invented in, the, in your work is Asperger. So I guess there is like, a, there, there are connections, very strong yeah. connections. My, my brother was diagnosed with Asperger syndrome in prison. Um, and. Um, so I learned a lot about autism. I'd read about autism every day. Um, I'd also try to get the support of um, autistic support groups and companies and stuff. I, I, um, the other reason it was viewed as a racist uh, state crime is because there was another extradition case, someone called Gary McKinnon, and he yeah. was uh, not extradited because he had Asperger's syndrome and assessed suicide risk. Um, and my brother, who had... Um, the same diagnosed risks were was uh, extradited. Was Gary McKinnon was not extradited on on that basis. So it was almost like there was a two tier human system, or there were different types of human, or different types of parallel law system, or you know there should be one um, law system that we are all subject to under the rule of law as equal citizens. But it seemed like there were two strands of citizenship there: two, one for brown Muslim citizens and one for white Christian citizens, which is not our notion of equality, right, within Europe uh, as, as diasporic subjects or uh, as people born here who grew up here, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, Aspergistan is also present in the chicken shop thing. So, firstly, my book's called Shy Radicals. Uh, type at Shy Radicals on Twitter or, or Instagram to find it. Or, um, and... It's more than a book. I guess it's a bit like a fictive, speculative movement that actually has a lot of influence. Project Artworks are also in Document are very big fans of the book, and we, we actually did a double bill together, Neurodiversity Double Bill, as a preview event. And we want to screen the film again with an introduction by Project Artworks, as we've been discussing, but uh, it might be banned now by uh, the stupid uh, authoritarian, illogical... Um, banning by the new executive so it, will, uh, it was one of the public events and hopefully inshallah god willing it will um 
be programmed with an introduction by Project Artworks. They're very much, Project Artworks are 100% behind me. They just sent me a message today saying, look at the sky and know that we are with you. And it's, it's actually really refreshing to hear Kate's very English <laughs> accent um, show me 100% love and support and solidarity and empathy. And I need more of it. Um, please do your little. I, I'm all for like forms of forms of like um, uh, simple activism. Someone just writes love and solidarity with documenter fifteen artist Hamza San hashtag hands off documenter. Do that now. Write on a piece of paper. Take a picture and send it to me on uh, Instagram at share radicals, and um, that can be the start of thing. I'm I'm not a fan of this sort of pretentious uh, curatorial speak goldsmiths efflux like to me that's that doesn't speak to working class people it doesn't speak to people outside the sort of bubble of elite universities and uh, globalized universities and and it's for its good intentions i mean the afd are now attacking efflux as part of the bds conspiracy but uh that's i'd actually prefer more heartfelt uh, plain language um, um anyway uh, there so that was very traumatic but i also do art projects that come out of the book so i did a referendum for the state of Asbergistan. but so i didn't understand to do the film or the book was traumatic or like the, what was traumatic I tried the film it? the film i had to go through the archives of my brother again so the media okay, archive, okay okay that, that and the was, okay, archives yeah. and and so if you watch the film it very much has like um uh, it's going to be on Nowness apparently on September the fifth, I think, and then it'll be on there for a number of months so people can watch it online. But um, the film, yeah, it, I had to revisit those years, and um, my parents were interviewed about the uh, trauma for them, and it was really like one man. It was me against the U.S. government, the British establishment, and the, you know that whole arsenal but and still i'm alive somehow um so but the the sort of david and goliath asymmetry of power feels that way again and now we've got the uh, goliath of the axel springer press we've got the goliath of the documenta establishment um we've got the goliath of that german state which is on the side of israel unconditionally and we've got the Goliath of the German Parliament, where it's very difficult to find a voice that isn't white supremacist or white normative or, or you know, supportive of the apartheid regime. Um, it's it's disgraceful that Die Linke, which calls itself the left, no left wing party would cause the Gaza Freedom Flotilla a a anti-Semitism. No left wing party would call BDS anti-Semitism. Every, every single progressive left-wing liberal trade union in britain supports bds it's pretty banal and normal it's it's very much like seen as nothing special whereas if one supports the bds in germany one is like basically witch hunted abused uh, i i get people like saying happy to see dead arabs i get people saying muslim nazi rat i get people calling me worthless i get now a hundred of these messages a day across all platforms youtube tiktok twitter email anywhere i have any online presence i will get an avalanche of racist islamophobic abuse um some of the people are a bit dumb so they think that i'm from palestine i have to point out so they go go back home to palestine or get deported and it's like well i am at home i'm at home in london where i live 
with my family, so how can you deport me from my own? So firstly, they're dumb and they think I was deported. And the, the fact of the matter is documentary actually paid for me to have an extended stay so I could re- research Islamophobia and anti-Muslim exclusion in the documenter archives. They, they happily paid for that, like very kindly so. And they also paid for me to, to speak more on my signs. So I was going to do a series of video commentaries. I've done a few, and you can see them on my YouTube can- channel at Hamja Hassan, H-A-M-J-A-H-S-A-N. Um, you, can, you can see those commentaries. Some of them are on my YouTube channels, like at Chicken Contemporary. But... Um, sorry on instagram but like i couldn't do all of them because i didn't have enough time and i was also quite damaged by this axel springer hate campaign against me which was started by the fdp politician stefan nass i mean one should always remember the fdp was beatrice von starch's first choice party before she defected to the afd for two years adolf hitler's finance minister's granddaughter who also visited documenta incidentally and the thing i find weird is that when i told everyone look beatrice von starch has come to our exhibition and she's posting about us to hundreds of people saying we're all extremists. Like, aren't you concerned? And nobody batted an eyelid. I, and I think Rangrupo, who I spoke to, were totally illiterate of the local fascist context. I spoke to Iswanto. He's like, oh, what's AFD? Who's she? He didn't even know this. And um, hence, that's that's blunted our power to be part of. There's a, there's a general anti-fascist coalition within Germany. Lots of people hate the AFD. Um and we should be part of that anti-fascist coalition, but we're not. We're appeasing fascists. We're appeasing racists. We, uh, during the Documenta 14, which you were part of, what would happen to Olu Gubi? You should talk about that for a bit, because I actually also went in the archives to research that. And the Documenta archives, they do not I do not keep like the, the right-wing papers. And I said, you should keep them, because I need to know what De Bild is saying about Olio Gubi. I need to know what the Axel Springer press is saying. I need to know what all the conservative press say against him. But they didn't keep any of it. They just kept HN, which was like a local newspaper. I got some facts out of it. But, yeah, you tell me, what, what how was that like when... and when Because you were in Documenta 14, and that would be happening in real time. So how was that like, and how, how was it communicated to the rest of the artists, and did the rest of the artists show solidarity? Um, yeah, so the thing is that Documenta 14 happened both in Athens and Castle, so it already started, there was already, you know, the whole exhibition was already happening from Athens, and then there was this obelisk that it was supposed to be in a central place in... Um, in Castle, and if I remember correctly, there was the idea that Castle will buy. I think if if I if I now that I heard that actually, uh, usually the city of Castle buys one artwork of its documenta. Yeah. So I'm making this connection now. So I guess there was the proposal that the city of Castle will buy this obelisk and have it there in the middle. Obelisk was very much pro-refugee in the context. Well, yeah, it has, it has, uh, was pro-refugee. Yeah, it, has, it, has this, uh, it has this sentence from the Bible, which, what, what is it? Uh, I was a stranger and he took me in or something like that. Yeah, and something yeah, like this. Yeah, so it's from the Bible. It's very, you know, it's very, very, it's a, it's a nice sentence. And, uh, but, I guess the AFD were very powerful there, and I, I don't know how the kind of right-wing coalition 
press happened and they got together but basically they it didn't there were actual protests outside it though there were people with banners outside yeah. this artwork i just found that astonishing and it's quite a bland artwork it's most of the time we stay at the hotel stad so we're directly in front of it and we see it from a window and the entrance to the hotel every single day and it just looks quite bland like to be honest it's not like but yeah, yeah but you have the to take into account was the, the 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 refugee debates within germany and it was charged by that i guess exactly so everything that happened in the 2015 uh which is you know things are so you know surreal so for example in this in the summer of 2015 before uh, angela merkel had this conversation uh, in a talk show and then there was a palestinian girl who said it's like oh what is gonna happen with us and my parents you know are we gonna get deported and then actually merkel was quite tough and said oh you know but not everybody can live here you know so something quite tough and basically she cried so this was like an early moment of you know well Merkel you know but then there was the whole decision of uh, accepting the refugees over a million refugees which was quite impressive and there was a lot of mobilization uh, but then the whole right wing also organized very very strongly with the whole Pegida movement and many other movements so there was a huge huge backlash and I guess so the, the, now you're accepting the refugees from Ukraine, but they are not treated with the same backlash. I mean, I mean, you can you can buy little badges in Documenta with the little tank that Dan, who does this big stop Putin, stop war thing, which I found a bit mononarrative. You can essentially donate to Ukrainian refugees now. But yeah, anyways. Yeah, yeah, that's a huge a huge difference, but. I, I guess that was, but what I mean is that there was a very strong rising of the far right and kind of racist groups. So, so I guess they got the organized for the documentary. Where they won eighty seats was that? What year was that? Was that during documentary or was it after? Sorry, there. The election where um, AFD won eighty seats was that. Was that during documentary or was that after? Was it after, wasn't it? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I... How long have you been living in, in, in Germany for? Nine years. Nine years, wow. Uh, it was around that time, but I think it might have been a bit after. Uh, when did... AFD... Did you notice the difference between Berlin and the rest of Germany there? Yeah, it's, 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 there's quite a, you know, it's a strong, but even though here you can also get uh far right right wing demonstrations so yeah. you know they they also have penetrated. Yeah, i don't find that there's even a proper left in germany or a proper opposition I, all i find is the afd say they're fascist racist speech and then the spd the c uh, du the greens and the 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 so-called left say a diluted version of the the racist speech i mean no one's standing up for achille Memembe, the the, the greatest black philosopher alive like 
No one's standing up for him in the parliament. Like, like this is a strange amount he can teach freely in uh, Trump's America and is protected by the US Constitution cannot come and speak in an art event in Germany. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I think I mean, this is this is on, this is uh, I think you are you know suffering the consequences of an you know kind of cultural battle which it has you know certainly with Achille member in which uh, he... to me the first person was Camilla uh, Shamsi who's a brilliant British Pakistani novelist and her novel Home Fire influenced my artwork in Documenta I read it in a reading group in Tutin where I grew up um, it was a very deep influence on the artwork in Documenta uh, one of the key literary works. She had a, a award withdrawn from her in Germany simply because she supported the BDS movement. I support the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. I've supported it for 16 years since Operation Cast Lead in 2006. I'm very proud to. Um, and uh, if anything, if Documenta is a serious decolonial anti-racist institution, it also should adopt BDS, just like American Ivy League universities can adopt BDS. How is Documenta... Uh, you know, how is Documenta different? The only way Documenta is different is that the executive of Germany interferes directly into the artistic freedoms um, and exhibition. And the SPD party, which seems to dominate the Documenta, um, what isn't, what isn't allowed. I mean, that is, it was just bizarre to me as a British person that a political party can tell what is acceptable in art and not because that would not happen in Britain you don't have Sadiq Khan the mayor of London telling us that Tate Modern or this triennial or biennial in Liverpool um, can and cannot do I mean I even had this discussion with Turkish friends and they're like well Erdogan wouldn't walk into the Istanbul Biennale and say I want that out that out I don't like that detail that's too pro-Kurdish doesn't happen. Does that happen? I mean, but that is essentially what's happening in Germany right now as we speak, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. To the extent now they're trying to censor Najal Ali, uh, who does the Handela cartoon, who's in the Women of Algeria's archive for a bunch of scholars. Um, so, it, it, the most famous Palestinian cartoonist in the world, they're trying to ban him in, in documented. This is deranged. Um, there's the Women of Algeria are a bunch of superb scholars and they want to get another set of scholars who they call experts to override them. I mean, what is a great idea of white supremacy um, than that? I mean, you, you get it when you go document and you go to Castle. A very strange encounter happens, which I saw again and again and again and again, which is a white male uh, who's German and over the age of 50 will come and just stare at you, sometimes take pictures. I was sitting having a quiet picnic with Moroccan collective LE18. All of them were there and we sat together by the riverbank having a quiet picnic. A sort of uh, almost totally naked white man, apart from his swimming trunks because he was swimming in the river, just came then. He just starts saying, oh, nothing's perfect, is it? Nothing's perfect, is it? And it's very passive aggressive territorial manner just because we were sitting having a quiet picnic. And that encounter happened again and again. When we sat in Happy Chicken, just outside, you get a white man, but over the age of 50 again, he'll just stand there, stare at all of you. These, the, you know, just banal Muslim families eating with their kids, black and brown people just eating chicken. And he'll just stand there and stare and stare. And that happened within Ruru House. You'd get a white man above the age of 50. Some of them would take photographs of me sitting around. I was like, why are they taking photographs? I mean, that, that's when it started to become scary after the... Um, 
hit piece by the build uh, build and yeah, Axel Spring and also the FDP's uh, online hate campaign against me, which he launched on the day of my event out of frustration. He's still not very popular, by the way. Stephen Hass is, of course, he has like 400 Twitter followers, so his hateful tweet is more popular than him. Um, <clears throat> like, the, these are these sort of, this encounter, which everybody experienced, uh, and is not a crime as such, you know, but is a symptom of the underlying politics of white men uh, over the age of 50 who used to be considered the supreme form of authority um, and the supreme form of sort of global power and are now diminished and their last hope is the, uh, the Trump uh, election victory is a person standing up for that type of white male domination like and he's obviously been defeated in the election although he can't accept that um, that happened to everybody uh, documented it was very bizarre um, there was stalking. Um, my friends from the Ghetto Biennale, who who are black artists from Haiti, um, and my friend Leah Gordon, who's a working class English woman who helps run the whole um, organisation from London. They said they experienced more racism in two weeks than they experienced in their entire life. And it would be a person stalking outside the venue, a person breaking into the venue, and threatening them. Like, why did I feel threatened by this quite inane, beautiful art? Yeah, and party office also got uh, hustled, no? The, the collective party office who were in the venue WH22, where everyone seems to have been attacked. Um, yeah, they, they, I've been in touch with them. They, they were attacked in the street uh, in a transphobic and um, what they perceive as racist attack. So I think a uh, gang of white men came out of a car and chased after them in the middle of the street and they called the police I think and the police came and they actually detained an arrested party office and put them in handcuffs for over 40 minutes on the pretext they didn't have passports even though that's not a requirement in Germany rather than the sort of racist threatening mob and I noticed this is the pattern within Germany like the way they treated the NSU murders the way they treat um, racist neo-nazi is that they try and blame the victim um we saw this when the police set up a fake kebab shop to uh try and blame turkish people for their own murders like that's how messed up the whole situation is so it feels very much like the state and the law and the police are on the side of the racists and the fascists and maybe some of the racists and fascists are infested into the police force like many other police forces around the world um and hence we do not get justice for victims we don't get lessons for victims, we don't get constitutional change for victims. We get constitutional protections for fascists. I mean, the AFD are protected under the law, whereas a brilliant left-wing newspaper like Young World, Young World, or um, the Socialist Equality Party, which also does some excellent pieces on Documenta, are under state surveillance by German intelligence. I mean, what the fuck is that? Sorry. <laughs> No, there is no, there is no. But hopefully, there is no censorship here. <laughs> Don't worry by any means. It's just a you can very be, humble yeah, if, if, like, podcast. Yeah. But it's true that there is a, such a distance between you know making such a big deal out of these anti-Semitic accusations, and then it's like making a huge hierarchy between. Okay, we have anti-Semitism, and this is actually taking all the discussion and all the attention of the German media. 
then there is other forms of discrimination which but if we just start with anti-semitism i don't think they're actually even talking about anti-semitism i am a hundred percent any violent attack against the jewish minority in europe right and i i actually asked documenter you have to um get the jerusalem declaration against anti-semitism and make it it's something that you as an institution will support and i said you need to get the Runnymede trust um accounts of islamophobia and anti-muslim racism and also adopt that as an institution i, I requested that numerous times and i don't think they listened to me the uh the the pro-apartheid side pro-netanyahu side want them to adopt the ihr definition of uh, anti-semitism which is uh, basically criminalizes uh or blacklist the the bds movement and also just um Jews who are progressive and want equality for um, the Palestinian and progress and peace um, and are against the illegal occupation and against apartheid and against ethnic cleansing so it ends up criminalising other Jews um, so they're not talking about anti-Semitism, what they're talking about is allegiance to German foreign policy one has to almost, to be a documenter artist which is treated with full respect do I have to pledge an oath of allegiance to King Olaf and the SPD party, and then pledge an oath of allegiance to NATO, and then pledge an oath of allegiance to Ukraine and the Nazi elements, and then pledge an oath of allegiance to the illegal Israeli occupation and illegal Israeli settlements. I mean, that almost seems the preconditions for being left alone as an artist, to be respected as an artist, to be respected as a human within Documenta. I just wondered if you experienced anything similar when you did Documenta 14, or do you think things have just got worse? The, the, the atmosphere is extremely toxic now. I mean, it was already there, but, you know, I think now it's another level. As I said... I'm also know, glad I can't speak or read German, because if I could, I'd be even more messed up. And, and uh, Yeah, so <laughs> what I said, and there's been, I think, you know, it's, there is a fight going on, which has been, you know... Like with the Akil member thing, also the director of the Jewish Museum, uh, of the previous director of Jewish Museum, Peter Sefer, he they they sent a tweet, you know, being critical in 2019. You know, they sent you know from the account of the museum a tweet, which was a link, I think, to an article that was critical to the BDS decision made in the Bundestag of claiming that BDS is anti-Semitic. So there, there was that. Then there was uh, in the cultural sphere. So basically he had to resign because this tweet was so, you know, so the, 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 the pressure was so strong that he had to go even though he was a brilliant academic. Then there was uh, in 2020, uh, Kunst, which is a very intellectual and supposedly progressive magazine of art made an issue on anti-antisemitism. So, and this was mostly kind of just carrying the agenda of Israel, you know, the pro-Israel kind of agenda with no, no, and no critical voice. And this, in the international level, got a huge, huge backlash. Also here, you know, it, it got such a backlash that the adversary board imploded, and they had to reconsider themselves. But I guess there, 
you can see a kind of contradiction between maybe people or intellectuals that grew up within whole anti-Deutsch uh, movement, which so they play... The listeners in England who have no idea what this deranged cult called anti-Deutsch is, I only met it myself until I, I, I came to document and then all the local people of colour said there's this deranged group called Antidoge and I learned the hard way through them stalking me on Facebook and whatnot. Yeah, and so employees so within the right documenter. So what is Antidoge and Well basically is it um it started kind of I think in the you know in the relationship to the reunification of Germany they were against it's, it comes from the Antifa movement often and from extra parliamentary left and they were against the reunification of uh, Germany because they thought that anti-semitism will rise which in that regards they were right there is uh, a thing what I think is an important uh, essay by Moise Postone is a this theory is the critical theory I, I think that 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 gives them too much credit as a organization like their, their actual day-to-day manifestation is their islamophobic anti-arab uh, yeah yeah they, they think is that, they, that, that originally there is but, they, but there is a very, whatever the historical route is that's pretty much their day-to-day activity to dox yeah yeah they went they were they had a kind of uh, they had there is still but what i want to say is that there is a valid criticism in which you know this text from postone addresses the relationship between uh, anti-Semitism and uh, the fetishism of uh, the commodity form. I like the anti-Semitism in the sense of projecting the qualities of global capitalism, i.e. abstraction and impersonal kind of powers, international kind of powers. Mm -hmm. So in that you know, there, there is an intellectual kind of seed to the reasons of the anti-Deutsch movement. We know which... recently that Berlin Pride has ejected anti-Deutsch from Berlin Pride because they see them as a racist colonial organization. Absolutely, absolutely. Centre should do the same, and I've made that demand. But I, absolutely, but what I want to say yeah. is that there is a very sophisticated intellectual. Uh, people in power in Germany who grew up with, you know, there was this magazine called Bahamas, which was extremely influential. And, uh, and, and this, you know, through the, I guess, 90s, a lot of people grew up and it's often quite connected to, a, you know, hardcore value critique. So there is a side to anti-Deutsch that can be, have a very sophisticated argument then September 11 happened and that was like a big kind of breaking point in the anti-Deutsch movement because then after that uh, a part of the a, a big part of the anti-Deutsch movement supported the invasion of Iraq and of uh, in, in Afghanistan Britain, we have a deranged cult called Alliance for Workers Liberty which is uh, on the very fringes of the left and I mean, I wouldn't even call them left. They're liberal imperialists who um, pretty much take the same positions as them. They're pro uh, every imperial war, um, pro NATO, and pro Israel, right? 
but I think it starts before, prior to that actually because in the 1990s anti-Deutsch took the position of one um, supporting Milosevic uh, during the genocide against Muslims so they're not going to like me as someone who does a lot of activist work to remember the Bosnian genocide and they were also pro George Bush George Bush senior because during the Gulf War they supported the United States against the uh, Arab um, demand for autonomy and um, yeah so they supported both Bushes Bush yeah no, no and this this yeah. also and so you know so and so there was maybe I don't know if I split but the, you know so you have uh, anti deutsch left and anti deutsch very very right you know to the to the point that obviously they supported you know so then they but the, you know the, the connection is that there is this unconditional support to the state of Israel yeah and that you know I remember in you know when in the war of Israel against Lebanon in 2006 there was all these demonstrations you know and they have like this Israel flags American flags George Bush you know so you get the whole it's funny because 2006 was the pivotal year for my political consciousness because it was a year as I said Gaza was bombed and the is uh, Lebanese resistance defeated the Israeli army which one had never seen before and my brother was ripped from his family home and detained without trial or charge for the next six and a half years so it was a very pivotal year for me um, so that's interesting that you bring 2006 up um, yeah. I was actually supposed to go document the following year 2007 and that was the first document I was supposed to go to but actually on the day of my flight I realized my passport was <laughs> expired and so I never ended up going to document until I was in it. Um, That's pretty amazing. Like, I mean, yeah, many years later. But I, I, I actually, um, we could stick on Antidote or fork off with Documenta. I dreamt about being in Documenta since I was a student, an art student at Central St. Martins. I knew Okwia Wazel's Document 11. Okwia Wazel was my hero. My ambition in life was to be a Documenta curator. Um, oh, curator, that's interesting because I, yeah. I went to that documenta and it blew my mind. It was after I studied, you know, did the BA with Antal Entire, which we both studied under her. Yeah. Yeah. That really blew my mind, that documenta. That for me was, again, you know, for me it also was a dream to be part of documenta. It, it, because... it, it blew my mind and I wasn't even, you know, yeah. there. Like, that, to me, documenta 11 just changed the possibility of what I could be. Um, and what I wanted to be, and um, yeah, I, I the, one of the big influences on the Shy Radicals book was Okwin Wazel's anthologies. So Okwin Wazel did an amazing exhibition called The Short Century about African liberation movements, where he collates all the documents from the various charters and constitutions of African liberation movements. That was a very key influence on um, Shy Radicals and its prose style and its constitutional style. And um, I drew from that. So Ockham Ways also, in his curatorial um, practice, influenced my writing um, too. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. And I actually uh, collect as many Ockham Ways books as possible in my house. Even if a book costs like seventy pounds, um, I will buy it because I realised Ockham Ways books they basically just disappear and. I, th I think I saw Archive Fever in a shop and it was £25. I regret not buying it because now you can't buy it for like, you know, it has to be like £400 or something ridiculous. So my Aqua and Wazel collection at home is actually now probably worth, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of euros because the books just go out of print. So 
um, yeah, Lucy Lippard and Aqua Wazel, which were two curatorial heroes for me before. Curating now is just some sort of cliquey, jargon infested, like nonsense for, for elite um, academic schools like Royal College of Art and Goldsmiths being the two predominant two, and maybe what the Apple in um, Amsterdam. I mean, that's pretty much curating is now. But um, Aquian Wazel didn't go through that masturbatory, pretentious, verbiose. He doesn't speak like a Slavoj Žižek reading hipster, you know. He, there's still some real talk there, I guess. I actually um, taught under Otto Metabauer, who was one of the artistic team, a uh, German curator. I was part of the international curators course in uh, Guangzhou Biennale in 2010, and she was like our teacher or mentor. Um, and she said she had some very rough conversations with Oku and Wazor. Um but they were good for her. Okay, I think she got dragged into the whole this documenta issue, no? I, I think. <laughs> I am. Um, she might have because um, I on my private Facebook account, which is being stalked by um, FDP anti Deutsch, probably AFD too, and probably the documenta team and possibly German intelligence if they are um, monitoring. Um, the Socialist Equality Party and the young well, you know, my politics aren't hugely different from those organs. Um, yeah, I, I actually wrote about my experiences in Guangzhou Biennale, and that was that a white curator woman uh, called me a terrorist for supporting BDS, and at the time nobody showed me much empathy or sympathy in that course, which is predominantly all white. There wasn't a single black person or a single black African. Um, there was one white South African from uh, London School of Economics who was a summer representative from Africa. Like, anyway, and um, despite her calling me a terrorist for supporting BDS back then, which is what, 2010, I think, um, yeah, no one said anything. In fact, one other white German curator just simply said, just, just the only thing she objected to was that I pointed out this, this curator was white rather than um, the actual racist slur and Ultimate Bauer also didn't show any empathy or sympathy or so I, re I, I wrote a little Facebook post about it and I said she was a bit of a fake ally and a fake friend which sadly I've drawn to the conclusion having known her all these years and having known staff that she employs I find a lot of these white curators like Charles Esch um, the guy who did Documenta 14 and Ultimate yeah I call them the Tim Westwood uh, art curators. Mark Godfrey is another one, and I guess the other guy is the guy at Van Abbey Museum. The mini Charles S. What's his name? Um, it's gone from my brain. Um, but these sort of so you get this white, you know, people affluent classes just calling themselves decolonial and maintaining their systems of power in institutions which are predominantly all white too. So uh, the most ridiculous case of this, there was a conference on. Rashid Areen, the great uh, anti-racist Pakistani ed found editor of Third Text and Black Phoenix, and every single speaker was white. Like this is astonishing, and that was done by Charles Esch, his uh, After All magazine, and some that other his little minion, his name escapes my mind. So there's no redistributive power. People like me live in poverty. I only got five thousand euros from Documenta. Your story is even worse, actually. And I've been working full time for them for nearly a year, nearly seven days a week. So 
these people like Charles Ashton or Tamara Batawa are probably not on salaries that are so low. So redistributive power, the basic redistribution of wealth, uh, is still not being enacted. And what all that happens is these white, uh, middle class, upper class people just call themselves decolonial and seem to get away with it and recenter power exclusively back on themselves. Anyway, so that's how Itamata Bauer got into this yeah, route. Yeah, what, was it elaborated yeah. further, though? I'm not actually aware whether that was, she was asked about it or anything. I actually asked for her help because um, the AFD guy, Frank Grobe, who's basically the local guy in the Hess Parliament who wants to shut down Documenta and mocks it and said it's all wrong because it has too many Muslims, he um, mentions, he goes, oh, but Documenta was once great because it had Andy Warhol, Joseph Boys, and A. Weiwei. And I'm sure Aiwei does not approve of the AFD. So I wanted uh, Utameta Bauer to, to try and get Aiwei, who was the curator of the Guangzhou Biennale that year we were taught. It, we, it was a design biennial. One year's a design, the next year's the, the, the art one. But he was the curator of it, so she has some contact with him, possibly. So I asked her uh, as an idea, and I, I wanted her to get Aiwei to speak back to the AFD and say stop using me for your campaign and my values do not align with the AFD which I'm sure he, he would happily do if he someone just informed him that his name was being misused yeah I just saw that she actually was part of the committee that uh, advised Rwangupa uh, yeah yeah the commission board which also consists of Charles S. Francis Morris her um Elvira and Amar Kamwa. Um, I don't know everybody's name, but I mean, some of them are in bed with Israel. Anyway, I mean, Francis Morris, Tate Modern, takes money from Rupert Murdoch's daughter and also um, takes money from the arms dealer, Zabubowicz. How was the preparation like? Because this documenta, very different to the previous one, the whole preparation was done with the artist and there was like a very horizontal kind of approach and I guess you were meeting a lot through Zoom, no? So how was the preparation? Yeah, or how did I you did. get invited and then how was the preparation? I got invited to Documenta by Frederick Hansen, a Danish curator who was a huge fan of Shy Radicals. That, that's pretty much how I got invited. Um, and she said she wished she had a book like Shy Radicals when she grew up. So that is pretty much how my life's run for the last five years. Just fans of Shire Radicals invite me here and there. And then I had a meeting on Zoom, which went on for about two hours with um, Fred, Lara Kaldi, the Palestinian curator, and Rangrupa. Rangrupa just randomly talked about anything from coffee shops, quote-unquote, as in cannabis shops in, in the Netherlands, to hipster and hipster salafis because hipster salafis have the similar types of beards and then they also talked about um, just random shit like Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain how Courtney Love really killed Kurt Cobain and so I had four ideas at this stage for what I wanted to do at Document and I was in residency at the Yan Van Eyck Academy they'd also read my profile and public events program on Yan Van Eyck Academy so that played a part and Rangrupa really liked DIY Cultures, which was a zine festival I ran for five years. And they still want me to run it and they still ask about it. And they all watched videos about me online. If you type my name on YouTube, you'll find hundreds of videos. And that was it. They thought I was a very eloquent speaker. And they thought um, 
book was amazing. Fred did. I don't know if any of the rest of them actually read it. And they they loved the zine festival. And I think zines are very much one of the unspoken about things that is in the spirit of Documenta. It's there with Question of Funding. It's there with um, Rand Grouper. And it's there with Safta Ahmed and the Refugee Project. Like the, the whole convivial non-authoritarian ways of making zines is very much within the spirit of Documenta. Um, so yeah, DIY cultures and share radicals was a key thing. I actually thought I failed that that interview. I thought there was a job interview that I failed, and and then I talked about it with people at Yamba um, and Academy, my fellow artists, and they said, "Well, why would they speak for you for two hours if you'd failed?" And I'm a person who doesn't count my chickens before they hatch. So, and then I was invited to document, and then uh, everyone was happy for me. Hundreds of people were proud of me and happy for me. Um, from my own community and, and also the artists that were well done and um, I, I was very depressed I was lying on the sofa staring at the ceiling and I suddenly got this email from Documenta and it made me jump up a bit and I and there was a rumour about fake Documenta emails that was posted on the website so I actually had to question them is this actually a real email or was it fake um, and yeah that's how I got invited um, and then there were these meetings called Majli Akbars, which I actually found utterly tedious. They were basically seven hour, <laughs> or felt like seven hour Zoom meetings with like over 150 people. But I mean, I, I sometimes resent some of the use of Islamic terminology within um, Documenta, and that's as a semi practicing Muslim or bad Muslim or whatever. Because Majli for me is when you go to Shia mosque, I'm not Shia, I'm Sunni, but I go to Shia mosque sometimes. And they narrate stories about Hussein and Fatima. And you get this group of Iranian men usually just burst, or Gujaratis because they're Shias predominantly, bursting into tears and crying. It's so full of passion and theological connection with God. And that's what you do in a mosque. And now they're using Majlis for these big, boring, pretentious Zoom meetings. I'd rather to just call them Zoom meetings, to be honest. Um, so that, that was imagine Akbar. Akbar means great. It's used as Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar as in God is great. So they put Majlik Akbar to describe these very tedious <laughs> like Zoom meetings. I mean, one of them, each of us had described what we'd like to eat for lunch. So I said I like to eat fried chicken naturally, but there were like 150 people saying, oh, my name is blah, blah. I'm from Mexico and I want to eat this for lunch. But I had to listen to that 150 times. I watch a member of Good Skull get drunk and smoke, and that was just tedious. That that's that happened so many times, and then we get have all these so-called Majli Akbar's big Zoom meetings, and they're often dysfunctional ways of communicating. They're like big corporate office meetings. They're not particularly fun to attend. They're not particularly funny. They're soulless, heartless, and there's a quite a lot of pretentious art speak in it. And so that's basically, and then there were mini Majlis, which was your little group. I was with Jimmy Durham, actually, but Jimmy Durham died during the course of the thing. And then I was with the filmmaker, Pinar, I think she's Kurdish, Turkish, and, and the other person from Central Asia. And there was someone from Argentina, but we somehow share the same time zone-ish based on where we live in. That's how we group together. And I find them equally tedious. I didn't attend them anymore. I just dropped out of it because... It was like being put with a random group of people who have nothing in common with, and they talked about highly sophisticated, high-production filmmaking, which I have no experience of. Uh, so some of them got on because they were both high-production filmmakers. Uh, I'm not. You can see my films. They're, they're far more DIY. 
and I felt a bit inferior to these people. And and then I said, oh, I'd like to spend my money because we were discussing how to spend collective money on a zine library. Again, it was just like I could have been a piece of tumbleweed. No one really cared. And then I just left the group because it was too much work and I felt very depressed. I felt like I wasn't good enough for anything. I wasn't good enough to do anything. I just felt really depressed and low about myself. So I left. Um, but then actually the people from Jimmy Durham, because Jimmy Durham died in Chambers, uh, we get on really well and we work together really well. Um, and he's totally my comrade and totally in solidarity with me. And, and that is as outside of that structure because that structure was like a corporate office meeting or a, or a school assembly and hence the conversation was so listless and uninspired and soulless and bullshitty and then we left that structure and we have a very good uh working relationship and a very respectful relationship um and the, similarly another argentinian artist in that group we had a very good relationship and spoke very well and she invited me to to, to come to Brighton where she's based not far from London the beach city uh, and then we started working in these mini Majulies which were again listless soulless heartless pretentious and a corporate office structure which just generates nothing it doesn't have fire it doesn't have soul it doesn't have energy it doesn't have heart it doesn't have wind it doesn't have fire it just it's just yeah, no, 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 no. It's, and then we're monitored and recorded by the start. And I, I don't know, in the grand scheme of the big pretentious curatorial vision, they were supposed to mean something. They're also dysfunctional in terms of communication because it was very hard for us to be in the same time zone at the same time. And as busy professionals, we were very much doing other things. So it just half the conversation was just about getting time for us to meet in this conversation I just in the end pulled out of it I became very depressed and I said oh I'm just a good for nothing kind of like you're, you know I'm not I just said I don't know I was just very depressed and I, I left out but I don't know what they did with my money because I have 10,000 euros that we're supposed to discuss I have no idea what they've done but I'd actually still like to do that zine library but not with a bunch of high production filmmakers who know nothing about zines but that's how it was done and were you inspired by the kind of approach that Rangrupa had and the Lumbum um, idea? I barely see Rangrupa at all. Like, I see them in the corridor and say hi, or I sometimes say Aslam alaikum and insist on it. They're like, Wa alaikum Aslam, or Aslam alaikum rahmatullah, the more barakatuh. Aslam alaikum rahmatullah barakatuh. That was just a more elaborate way of saying the Islamic greeting. Um, uh, and really, I have no idea if they even read my book. I have no idea if they watched my film. In the, in the uh, email they sent to me recently, they didn't even seem to be aware that I had three more public events available. So I have, you know, Ade from Rangupa invited me to Indonesia uh, via Instagram and very much interested in zine culture and he sent me his zines. But yeah, there's very little contact. The person I had the most contact with was Fred, who. Um, read my book, watched my videos, commented on them, and sometimes half enthusiastically. I don't understand what Lara does, like she has silly clown hair, and there was one point where things got so bad between all of us that they suggested I stop doing art and just make a podcast series, which made me so severely depressed and so severely self-loathing and so severely damaged my sense of self-confidence and self-worth and I'm glad I didn't listen to them and ended up making my five video pieces and 14 signs which are now selected as the best documenter by a couple of um, newspapers in Germany and a couple of um, 
Turkish and international people and also yeah it was very loved by many museums and collectors around the world um so I'm glad I didn't do this podcast series um but that that's how it worked I, I was very up and down very very I got very down I even considered committing suicide at some point um during documenta I just felt like I could do nothing and and the money they give you is so poor it's five thousand euros and you're just married to them it's like being in an abusive marriage that's the best metaphor you're constantly gaslit you're not valued for the work you do you will be ignored half the time you would not be treated like you're valued half the time you're treated like you're worthless and embarrassment and um it's it's not always and disposable and um that's my experience of documenta it's i mean there were great things too i made some wonderful friendships from you know the le18 in morocco want me to come to their space there are people from south africa want me to come to their space there's people from all around the world there's people i met from tehran who loved my work there's friends i hadn't seen in years from mexico and bangladesh all of that was wonderful but like as an institution as a working practice it's one of the worst experiences if not the absolute worst experience i've had in my 14 year art career yeah that's i mean one thing that i think i mentioned to you but like one thing that it became clear to me is the way that documenta if there is an element of avant-garde to documenta is certainly in work exploitation I, yeah, I only got model of exploitation to the the core. Like it's basically you're flexible to such a severe degree. It's like you work seven days a week, and you can work. At, they could message you in the middle of the night, and that becomes how they work. <coughs> yeah. So there is like this fascination that we all have. Like we, if we understand what Documenta has meant, you know, for us, you know, as artists, and like a kind of pivotal. You just got 1,000 euros as well. How the hell do you live on 1,000 euros? Yeah, well, not, 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 you, you, yeah, other things. But uh, I know many people, I know, I know a friend had to pay, you know, in order to realize their pieces. And that's like something, them speaking to other artists, you understand that often in Venice, in the Venice Biennial or in Documenta, artists in the past, paid for the production because they think that is an investment it's a form of investment then when you are inside and then you see what happened i mean what happened to me is i had a four-year long breakdown you know after documenta which you know like nobody i think i'm going through that breakdown right now (laughs) i think i'm just i think i've had a breakdown and i'm just dying and it's there's post-documenta trauma it's just there brutal, is, you know, and I, I, I didn't have, you know, what you've been going through. I mean, there's going to be so many bodies that there are... It's a mental health food. crisis. That's what documentary is now. It is a mental health crisis for everyone in there. It's like they have a guillotine over their head constantly. And, like, they're, they're helpless in terms of the abuse their experiences in the German I mean, media. No, yeah, the, nobody, nobody tells you... First, nobody tells you about, you know... the the kind of intensity that you go through and I was in a documenta that it was you know not, it didn't have this you know what you've been going through and many many of the people involved I mean it's it's just gonna be I, I'm, I, I know that it's gonna be very very brutal I mean it has been brutal for 
I presume a lot, a lot of artists and Ruangrupa, but the aftermath, you know, how how is gonna live, you know, what kind of bodies and mental... We don't even know if it's gonna run until the end. They're still threatening to close it down every single day. Yeah. The, the, the main, mainstream of commentators are threatening to close down Documenta, their biggest export. Can you imagine in London people threatening to close down the Olympics or the World Cup or the Wimbledon tennis? It's the equivalent. It's, it's like a form of self-emulation. And why? To protect their military alliance with an illegal occupation and apartheid regime. It's just not exactly a good trade-off, is it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's. I was talking to Eric Beltran briefly, and you know, I mean, he said that it's so tough. It's so so tough to go. I mean, because he has the this amazing work that he's doing of having a printer, functioning printer in the middle of Documenta Halle, and printing all the fan scenes and the posters and everything, and to keep it without censorship is. Well, a, a, a I think it helps though that where is Eric from? He's, he's, he's from Mexico, but he lives in Barcelona. Okay. And well, uh, I think I mean that's Mexicans are maybe in if it was in America, Mexicans are more a threat category, but less so in Europe. But if he was Muslim or Arab or, or black, that I I think there'd be a bit more uh, less trust in. Uh, him, although I'm not going to undermine how difficult it must be for him and I, all, all power and credit to him. But um, can you imagine if he was like a Somali Muslim running that press? Can you imagine that he'd be let free? I'm always having to dodge the political policing of Documenta. So, for example, before my event, the People's Chicken, they wanted slides in advance and they also wanted a meeting in advance. I avoided both of them. I said, oh, just during this time for the pointless meeting, just research my other speakers, and I, which I generally don't. And I said, oh, I just got my slides done on the day because I didn't want them to be policed and censored and whatever. So I'm always trying to dodge this, which is an experience in no other country. A lot, a place I spent the, most of my time is Slovenia and the Ljubljana Biennial, which actually pioneered decolonial internationalism many decades before Documenta did since 1955 when it started. So when Documenta was being curated and run by literal Nazis, uh, the Ljubljana Biennial was invited Africans, Asians, the Arab world into their space and having this beautiful progressive internationalism decades before. It's written about in a book called Non-Aligned Modernism, which is a book written by one of my friends, which I recommend everyone read. Um, but actually the internationalism of Documenta is actually a catch-up game because Havana pioneered it, Havana pioneered it, and Ljubljana pioneered it, real existing socialism pioneered it. People who defeated uh, the, the Nazis by a partisan guerrilla warfare, they, they, they're the one who made that internationalism, that non-aligned movement, which Ade from Rangruber brought up again when he spoke in the German parliament. Um, it wasn't Germany, Germany came late on the scene. And even when Catherine David civilised Documenta in Documenta 9, and there was so much objection to a French woman just curating. Yeah, yeah. There, there has been so. I mean, so many times there has been scandals, and you know, them history judges them differently. But yeah, as you were saying, you know, there, there was a huge 
But sorry, in Ljubljana, biennial, I can freely criticize the government. I can say Yana's Yansa is a fascist pig. No one would say anything. I'm, I'm respected. That's my constitutional liberty. That's my civil liberties. That's my right to have a different view from the government. I can also do that in the United States. I did that in uh, Trump's America, which invited me twice to speak at Ivy League universities and also PS1. I can freely talk about um, my opposition to the government which I cannot do in Germany. It's now being criminalised to call the uh, Chancellor Olof a fascist neoliberal pig or neo-imperialist from my home in London uh, by sharing a Guardian news story um, on YouTube, which is about the remilitarization of Germany. Like, I can't do that. Like, that's somehow, if that was Slovenia or either USA or any other part, I'm free to do that in my own home in London, England. Also, within Slovenia with the Janez Janza government, which was an Orban-type government, uh, I could freely not only criticise the government, but freely put Palestine flags all around the venue and the public parks of Slovenia. And the curators actually really sweetly took pictures of Palestinians doing their own demos in the heart of Slovenia for me as like a sweet present. And they also gave me books about the partisans, because many people in Slovenia have grandparents who are partisan guerrilla fighters against the Nazis, in contrast to Germany where many people have uncles or grandfathers who are literal Nazis, which does a lot for the central psyche today. Um, but yeah, so I, in other, I've the first time I've experienced this ever within my 14 year art practice, this form of censorship, this form of executive control, this form of racialization, this form of threats, abuse, mental health crisis that is really what documentary is it is really like an abusive marriage it's like the girl you dreamt of marrying and then she ends up committing domestic violence against you and gaslighting you and trying to ruin your life that is the experience of documenta it's a dream turned into a nightmare yeah that's so so sorry so sorry to hear um yeah very very sad um yeah do you want to say something about Anne and why do you <coughs> want to some martins and how, how you know we we'll say how we can say so i had a really wonderful encounter with my friend martin hosted in the podcast in that i went to the documenter's shop and i went to documenter's shop because documenter promised me that they would stock my book shy radicals and the general coordinator promised me she would put it in the window of the shop and I'd asked my curatorial assistant for over half a year to get that book in the shop and I went to the counter and I was rather heartbroken to discover it wasn't there and the way I discovered it wasn't there because there was a person in front of me in the queue who was asking the book shop whether I had a copy of my book and despite the book not being there I discovered a wonderful new friend in the host of this podcast yeah 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 which yeah, then it turns out that we, then we, turned out, we have the same education. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So I I went to Central Saint Martins in my um, mid twenties. Um, I'd I'd um, I diagnosed with bipolar disorder, manic depression. So I had several manic psychotic episodes, several depressive episodes, and several suicide attempts. And I came to um, Central Saint Martins as someone who'd left school at seventeen due to a suicide attempt and 
my second chance in life was given to me by a wonderful Irish woman called Anne Tallentire. Um, Anne Tallentire pioneered conceptual art education within the UK and should be given more credit for that. And she also represented Ireland in the Venice Biennale. She's a great artist, probably the best teacher I've ever encountered in my life. And she brought me out of the cold and darkness of hopelessness, of suicidal despair, and <clears throat> enrolled me onto Central St Martins uh, in 4D. I had nothing but my portfolio. I actually didn't have any A-level qualifications, which is the qualifications you obtain between the age of 16 and 18. I'd spent much of my years just sleeping all day and thinking about killing myself, right? I had, had no job. Um, but she gave me that chance in life to be part of the... Um, 4D pathway, which was a pioneering conceptual pathway within Central St Martins, and she also offered me to, to the chance to skip a year because she thought I was so bright I could skip the whole first year. And she gave some of my early essays uh, on Isaac Julian, was the first essay I wrote, and she offered to give it straight to Isaac Julian because I think Isaac Julian had been one of her students or at least a friend, and she liked the essay so much she wanted to pass it on to him. And she, she's really at every level, emotionally, intellectually, artistically, creatively, <clears throat> just was one of the biggest influences in my life. And I'm endlessly grateful for her. And then I ended up getting a first class degree after many years of um, suicidal depression and um, manic psychosis. I was essentially a professional mental patient between the age of 17 and um, 24. Uh, I was literally living on... Um, mental health benefits. Um, I was constantly in and out of hospital or having manic episodes or depressive episodes or suicide attempts. Um, and so she really, coming from the bottom to the top is something she really assisted with me in life. But she also has a very unique approach to education, which you, which you experienced too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I went there because they had this program, the CIFAP, Critical Fine Art Practices, which <coughs> I already heard that it was pretty amazing and that was exactly when this transition from CIFAP to the whole I think I was the first year when they did this division with 4D, 2D, 3D and I mean yeah it was such a confusing time at the beginning you know obviously the whole department was renovated and everything was very unclear and yeah I didn't have a good time in San Martins apart from being with with you know Having her as a... I, had a, I had a wonderful time at Central Martins. I had really hot girlfriends. I, uh, I got top grades. I'd get ninety-two percent. I'd get the top grades in the class. Um, I was treated as someone who was the brightest person in the class, um, and um, I, you know, it was wonderful because Central St Martins at the time was in central London. It was in Charing Cross Road, just behind Soho. So essentially. The British Museum was five minutes walk, the ICA was ten minutes walk, the Photographer's Gallery was a few minutes walk, Soho was just behind you, the whole of the heart of central London and its beat was there day in, day out, every single day. And the ICA was just walking distance and that was really helpful and really wonderful. Um, and now it's moved to a big slick venue in uh, King's Cross Road and at the time it was like diminished because um, Goldsmiths had taken over as the as the sort of trendy hip um, brand name star making institution, and Gold and Central Martin was I mean was 
used to be that in the 80s with Gilbert and George and all these. Uh, I'm not actually that fond of them as artists, these type of artists. And I think Stella McCartney and all these hip things. So, um, and then I think Glasgow School of Art became the, the hip place. Um, but the yeah, the 4D department was something very, very special. And maybe the fact that it wasn't so in sync with sort of a neoliberal sensationalist British media uh, economy that showed its educational merits, in fact. But I think it prepared me for Documenta 15 in that in Documenta 15, there are so many types of practice, social practice, environmental practice, media practice, sound practice. It's very much, um, it's all my friends who went to Documenta this year told me it's the best Documenta they've ever seen. It's the most groundbreaking exhibition they've ever seen. It's really broke the glass ceiling. They're friends from Tate Modern, friends from New Zealand, friends who yeah, are really <coughs> under I mean, Utameta Bauer at the Singapore it, Art Museum. It makes the, They've all told me the this. The Documenta for 14 look quite conservative and certainly white and, you know, tamed compared to this. I mean, it's, very, it's a very powerful... Yeah. Another big contrast is between the current Berlin Biennial, which also takes this quote-unquote post-colonial pretension, and that is very much one man and his head. So it's, the other thing that this document is not is cerebral. It's very much not like an academic text. It's like your living room. That was the philosophy of it. It's convivial. It has lots of places to sit, rest, make friends, eat have conversation. I mean, part of my work was at sharing fried chicken in the museum and um, making that free for everyone. And I intend to do that again if they don't ban me. Um, and eating fried chicken together is also uh, breaking down class barriers and race barriers and creating other forms of togetherness. I think I think you manage very well. You know, I think that kind of... Uh, I, the, I mean, it, it does break with a lot of hierarchies and certainly one is the discursive you know kind of the wrong side of this very positive thing that it's not like how the afd guy wanted to be it's not just the the great uh, andy warhol and jazz boys thing it's it's not the great man thing it's not even the man so i think it's very good for, i mean probably at the level of gender it's very very good too like it's it, the, the rural kids the um, the, the very uh, friendly, um, comfortable presence of gender non-conforming people are also persecuted by the AFD. Um, it's very good on neurodiversity. There's loads of quiet spaces everywhere. I mean, it's not perfect, but invited project artworks. Um, there's a lot of forms of um, equality being made at a convivial level. Having said that, I still think it could do a lot better in terms of the, like, because I used to go to local mosques with my friends, and when you go to local mosques, literally, there'll be a room of a thousand people. Everybody there is black and brown and Muslim, and they do not care about Documenta, and Documenta doesn't know how to connect with these people who live around them, and I've told them very directly how to do that. I even offered some of them um, who helped me on the project, um, to um, have complimentary tickets like everyone else who helped me out 
and the documentary just ignored me again. But um, so it's, it's it's not even interested in um, connecting with those people. And and it's really funny. So you you'll go into African cluster space every single person is white. You go into the North African space, every single person is white. You go into Richard Bell's Aboriginal tent, every single person is white. You go into the Black Archives, every person is white. You go to the Algerian Archives, every person is white. You go to the Iraqi Archives, every person is white. That was a pattern I was seeing again and again and again and again and again. And it's not that hard. You know, when I did my festival DIY Cultures, we knew how to take things which interested people you have to speak in languages which people connected with like it's sort of and the worst thing is is there's a complicity on the part of Ron Gruber and also people like Yasin Khalil because they're interested in quoting Slavoj Zizek to, to prove the hipster brownie points they're interested in getting drunk and doing karaoke with powerful white men like Charles Esch they're not interested in their uh, you know their, their brown Muslim brother who lives on the doorstep and they're not interested even sometimes in defending me publicly because they'd rather have closeness to the executive um, and the white executive power. And hence, they themselves also exclude people. I mean, the most heartbreaking moment for me was when I saw an uh, African Muslim woman from Ethiopia. And she came to the venue. She was an artist, had been in residency. And she was praying. And she was praying in the corner of Ruru House behind an elevator in a cramped little space. And that, that I found that quite heartbreaking and also inspiring that she managed to pray when no one had, had given her space. But in London, in Tate Modern, we just have a multi-faith prayer room. And we have the same in big museums like the Science Museum. I mean, the weird thing is the v Museum, which houses the largest collection of Islamic art and the largest art award, funded by Saudi Arabia, does not have a prayer room, and, and Tristan Hunt and the conservative um, <clears throat> management of that museum don't have one, even though they have the largest Islamic collections probably in the world, or in Britain at least, or Europe. And then, so someone who was a Muslim, so I once went on this date, this Islamic date with this woman called Jennifer, who'd been Muslim for like two weeks, and she wanted to pray. So. She had to go all the way to the Science Museum in the opposite venue. But the fact is, British institutions have spaces where such people feel included, equal, and um, whatever. And why doesn't document it then? It wouldn't take much to give a small empty room for someone. And, and Ruan Grupa knows this. Ruan Grupa knows all the people they're inviting from Indonesia. Some of them will be practicing Muslims, but they just can't give what a small little space. And one of the ways I think about diversity that, that we just don't think about is diversity of pieties. I have some friends who are very religious. I have some friends who are totally secular. We all together, we all eat fried chicken together. I have, I have female Muslim friends, some of them wear uh, niqab, so I've never seen their face. I have some people who wear hijab. I have some people who go through various stages, but diversity of pieties is part of diversity. Diversity of pieties is, and what is the creed of contemporary art is this form of homogenized secular liberalism, which is almost a type of religion, a sort of religion where the holy books are Judith Butler and um, Deleuze or something like that. They become the Quran and Hadith of contemporary art. And that creates its own exclusionary mechanism and it creates a very homogenized form of inclusion in terms of what type of people can get there from the Arab world, probably a very like... Um, Judith Butler type of Islam or 
like a very flattened, narrow, um, undiverse, uh, unpious uh, form of anti-inclusion. And the question of secularism is the key question in museums and art, isn't it? Not because how does um, something that's considered in a religious icon thereby become an artwork? How does something that's like part of a ceremony in a funeral or whatnot become an artwork? I mean, <clears throat> that question is not answered. And, and essentially the colonial encounter between the museum and the display object is, is this question of violent secularization. So one is taking objects which are from religious practice, ritual practice um, within Asia, Africa, Latin America, and turning them into aesthetic objects and pure ascetic objects, which is itself a process of violent secularization, which removes something from its life world into a pure ascetic object to be contemplated by white people and hipsters in an art museum space. Yeah. But uh, regarding Dua Ruangrupa, I, I mean, obviously, I'm not. I have not been part of the process, but uh, I'm still getting to know them, and I'm still like making our friendship. I mean, they must be. They're, they're, I mean, they, they, they must be going through hell. I mean, they, they've done something very radical. Yeah. They really put themselves in the line, and I cannot imagine what they're going through. I mean, they must be because they have the responsibility. Some of them for... live there as well. So it's one to actually lives in Castle, and so does Reza. So they have to be very careful in terms of, say, I can escape back to London always, yeah. the, the place where I feel uh, a welcome home and protected, but they can't, and nor can a lot of the local artists. In fact, one of the local artists who lived in Germany pulled out on one of my panels, and that's not because she doesn't love me or, or like, love the concept of, of the um, chicken talks. It's because... She, as an Arab German living in Germany, cannot go anywhere else. She has to stay there and she has to deal with the hell of the Axel Springer Press, the other types of um, <clears throat> art world racism, and she, she can't go anywhere. So, so, yeah, it must be horrible for them. But the thing is, Rangupa, like some of them are back home in, in Jakarta and they've stopped reading the news and they've stopped watching political broadcasts and and you know Jakarta's probably uh, a climate at least where there's more sun and uh, islands and uh, um, in Indonesia and so um, I think they're preparing for the post-documenta phase and some of them have already invited me to Indonesia so it's like what's going to happen afterwards and we have created riches and capital we have created even like relationships which will continue for the rest of our lives. I mean, even like informally, my friendship with you will be friends for life. We're going to do things together. We've already started that. And there are dozens and dozens of other friends from all around the world who are going to form into beautiful, flowering, collaborative relationships. And so it does have a future, just maybe not in Germany. Yeah, that's a very very good point I, I just wanted to end up with a question um, 
about the relationship between experimental music and uh, and your practice because I, I was so touched when you said that the Terry Fox piece, the Labyrinth score for eleven different cuts, was a a crucial piece for you. That was actually it kind of blew my mind. The very first um, sound art piece that I was introduced to when I did a foundation year at Chelsea um, College of Art um, was Terry Fox's Labyrinth scored by cats and it's just pairs of cats laid and laid and laid and laid on top of each other and that, that really blew my mind in terms of um, the richness of, of and simplicity of that composition and from that moment I start to investigate uh, Steve Reich's pieces, uh, com his composition methods. I attended a lot of his talks. There was a Steve Reich festival, I think, in the Barbican, so I saw him in person a number of times. Um, and then um, Ocean of Sound by David Toop. That was a very excellent book. But my initial entry into what is called conceptual art was what by sound work. So I did this sound piece when I was at Chelsea, um, where I uh, got some triangle of people speaking. So um, someone saying, I'm sorry, someone saying, I can't take it anymore, and someone saying, I don't know, um, something within that triangle of conversation. And then I, I got my mum to say these things, or she would refuse to say them, but I got her to... So she wouldn't say, I'm sorry, so... I got her recording of her saying, refusing to say I'm sorry, and I got a, a recording of her refusing to say I can't take it anymore. Um, and then I layered them all in, in a Steve Reich way with a, a sort of sequential delay in terms of time. So one was delayed by two seconds, one by three seconds, one by four seconds. So they created this cascading loop of voices. And that was the first sound piece I made in 2000 when doing a foundation at Central St Martins but it's very much um, I spent a lot of time with uh, Steve Reich and, and also Fluxus but I had actually since the age of 13 been into American alternative rock music and the band Sonic Youth and the band Sonic Youth themselves are an embodiment of multiple avant-garde layers they even did this album called Goodbye 20th Century where they have tributes to Namjoon Pike and Yoko Ono and stuff like that. And, and part of the writing of Shy Radicals is very obviously influenced by uh, that fluxus moment of conceptual art. You can see Yoko Ono's grapefruit in the way in which I've written in Shy Radicals. You can very much... You now, when Yoko Ono is talking about imagining... I mean, there are some really beautiful uh, sentences in there, but the poetics of write in law into Shire Radicals and write the constitution of Shire Radicals and write the constitution of Aspergistan was totally influenced by yeah that moment of conceptual art because I always found poetics and then the other person that's really important for me was Alan Capro but it's at this moment you get this idea of making systems and making scores as as a way of um, developing art and whilst I don't really have that much connection to sound art practice anymore I do some radio shows for resonance and stuff but it's not my main practice. But the whole notion of score making and improvisation. Um, so everything I do, including the videos I made for Documenta, are creating structures for improvisation. In fact, the Shy Radicals film, half of that, if not all of that, there's no screenplay, there's no actors. We are all improvising. 
and the improvisation, uh, Tom and I, the director of the film, created these structures for improvisation, whether that was a helpline, an introvert helpline people could actually call into, but they were all improvised calls, improvised dialogue. Um, but there were a structure within that improvisation which is created by scores and systems, which is very much influenced by the scores and systems of Fluxus, Alan Capro, that 70s moment of um, concept art and very much the education method of Anne Talentire was very much connected to this form of um, system making and seriality. So also in the, the fried chicken chains, which seem poppy, frivolous, um, there is also the same form of system making. There's, 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 there's the same elements of three words to make a fried chicken chain, Fanon fried chicken, Carbilla fried chicken, Cordoba fried chicken, Calafite fried chicken. You know, this is the same simple colour scheme, red, white, blue, and then simple variations on the repetition. But again, we're thinking about repetition, seriality, and... Uh, deviations from that repetition seriality and that again is done by this minimalist um, scores Philip Glass, John Adams, uh, Steve Reich it's taking very simple elements like a hand clap or 10 seconds of audio or a repetition of the same chord or Terry Riley's in C and just going through the structure of repetition again and then having odd deviations to that structure of very simple, very minimal um, compositional method. And hence something as simple and poppy and frivolous as the Lumbung Fried Chicken Documenta Fried Chicken Project is also a form of minimalist uh, composition. Wow, that's uh, that, there's so many connections because what I did for Documenta was also a score that it was repeated every day for an hour. So I'll I'll send you the book. You have to send me your address, but yeah, yeah, uh, we'll do it. So please, please do. And uh, I we did this with another artist, a performance artist, amazing Basque performance artist, actually coming from Zach. You know Zach? No, tell me more. Z A J J. It was they were very they were very close to Cage. You know, very connected to Fluxus, but there was a quite anarchistic um, uh, group uh, from Spain, and, but also Italy, you know, like acting on Franco's Spain, doing very radical things. So we did a conversation in the podcast, it's in Spanish, uh, but she, she gave us the her audio pieces. So I was wondering whether you would like to, maybe we could put your audio pieces within, you know, at p- points in the podcast, if you want to, I actually lost them. Actually, ah, you I, I, them. I, okay. I went through a series of depressions, and I spent a lot of my time campaigning for my brother, um, who was detained from two thousand and six. Anne Tallentine was hugely sympathetic because she said, as an Irish woman in the nineteen seventies, I experienced the exact same thing you're going through, and she showed me utmost love and solidarity through the whole process, wow. utmost empathy. And she um, and then it, I didn't really care about contemporary art um, from 2010. I just cared about Muslim prisoners and the appalling, brutal way they were treated under the war on terror. 
Oddly, my brother was actually in prison in Belmarsh and uh, Long Latin with a lot of Basque prisoners. There's actually a lot of Basque prisoners in the same unit and they make artwork and they're in the same creative writing groups and they write against the oppressive Spanish government, as they call it. And, and there's even a song called In a Belmarsh Isolation Unit written by Basque people in London, I think, um, that I used to listen to when my brother was in Belmarsh in group isolation and solitary confinement sometimes. Um, so we actually have something in common, which is, what I think, why we get on so well. Um, and one forgets things. So I don't use terms like people of colour. The, the word I use is subject race. I think it's a better word. Firstly, historically... When my hero, James Connolly, uh, was connecting with the Indian independence movement, they were recognising themselves as subject races. And all races can be subject. Um, the people of Liverpool were subject races as Scousers. They were seen as stupid, um, even though they're, they're wonderful, the best people of Britain. Um, and that's how they were so easily killed um, in the Hillsborough disaster. It was a form of racialization, And that form of racialization. I mean, whilst, you know, Afro-Americans have been the most brutalised, and probably my people, the Bengalis, through mass famines and mass starvation of millions of people, like the Bosnians, who are white Europeans, were a subject race. The Basque people are a subject race. Irish people are subject races. Celtic people within Britain, whether in Wales or elsewhere, are subject races because the system is not geared towards them. The system marginalises and destroys them. A Cornish people whose language is totally destroyed, Gaelic languages like Irish, which was totally erased and destroyed almost until its revival recently, they are subject races. So I see you as a Basque person, as a subject race. Plus, historically, there is, um, you know, the Basque uh, separatists and Palestinians are brothers in arms, are they not? Yeah, yeah. Um... Although I need to know the Basque movement a bit more thoroughly, because um, I mean, I know the Irish Republican movement, who are also brothers in arms of the Basques, but um, I'm not so familiar with Spanish political context. I've never been there, um, and I, I, you're teaching me more every day. Yeah, it's it's as I, as I mentioned to you before, it's changing quite a lot, and since the demise of ETA. It's uh, there's been, yeah, like a kind of discussion, and there's. I thought it was a zone against Franco as well during that time period. Yeah, yeah. So that that kind of changed a lot, but yeah, it's it's in a process of yeah. There's a kind of big discussion. We had a podcast with a with one person who is close to this movement of young communists, which they are reshaping. You know, some of the questions. Generally, Anglophone um, discourse knows very little about the Basques, um, apart from they have some connection with Irish Republicans. But generally, our, you know, I, my brain thinks in the English language and my landscape of the world is in the English language. So even Portuguese uh, language uh, landscape like Lula is not such a big thing in Britain, even though this will be the next major. Uh, election change which will hopefully change the world for the better with Lula but that's uh, my brain is very anglophone I, I speak uh, uh, Bengali very badly French even more badly through GCSE French um, and English is still my head it's still my globe um, if I spoke as many languages as you 
I think I'd see the world differently. Well, it's never too late. <laughs> My book's going to be yeah. translated into Spanish soon by Caja Negra Press next year. So the Spanish translation. Yeah, that's, a, that's a amazing. It will bring a whole a new. Fantastic um, there's also fans who write in the Catalan language, um, good things about Shah Radicals. And each new language brings a new landscape of associations and allies and um, histories. So when yeah. it gets translated to Spanish, because the, the publisher Caja Negra, so I'm probably saying it wrong, they, they're based in Argentina, but they also distribute in Spain. But the whole Spanish language territory is their, their, their game. So I'm going to have fans in Mexico, Chile, yeah, Spain itself, Argentina, and then those histories will enter into Shiradical lexicon. Yeah, that's, I'm excited. You know when will it be ready, by? Um, sometime in 2003. And other than that, I haven't been given an exact month. Wow. But ask Caja Negra. If, how do you say it properly? Caja, how do you say Caja it? Negra. Okay, you have to, I'm going to have to learn Spanish. I need to learn another language. The studio I have here in London, it's in a place called Walworth. And actually, probably more people speak Spanish, Arabic, and Portuguese in this area. The woman who cuts my hair, she is actually Brazilian and doesn't speak a word of English. And she somehow cuts my hair. I like it that way, though. And we do it through Google Translate. And if I, if you want to learn Spanish, Portuguese, and Arabic, come and come to this wonderful area. It's got all the uh, perks of great multicultural areas of London, but there's no hipster wankers or Goldsmith students to spoil it. <laughs> Woolworth. I love Woolworth. I love the area. It's where Charlie Chaplin was born and raised as well. The great socialist, anti-fascist Charlie Chaplin was born and raised. My my studio is actually named after a Charlie Chaplin. It's called the Chaplin Centre. And there's a big blue plaque to Charlie Chaplin on the road here, too. And he was certainly standing up against um, fascism and Nazism in his time. And I'm now going to go and look up Charlie Chaplin even more.
Elkartasuna Duintasuna Elkartasuna Maitasuna Freedom Bass Country Freedom Bass Country You are back to the present now, back to the long night To the bars of the window signs, pale the moonlight You have money that has to be just money to write None of us is to forget that yes, yours is a just fight